Howdy friends, welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, Todd Zillaxpod at EscapingTheCave.com. I'm your friendly, congenial host, Todd. I'm sometimes congenial. Sort of like a wolf. I bite every now and then. Grr. <laughs> Hope you're having a good one. Recording this chunk of this podcast on the early morning of October the 1st of 2020. The rest of the podcast, the main part of it that you're about to hear, was recorded, I think, on August 15th. Either the 5th or the 15th, I forget, of 2019. It's in the episode list back there. It's entitled Righteousness and Simplicity. That's the full episode. This isn't the full episode. That one back air runs about an hour 40. Has about 25 minutes of me ranting about the Democratic Socialists of America at the beginning. Don't worry. That's been cut. I've been sitting here editing for about the last two hours, so if I seem a little loopy, uh, that's why. I mentioned that I was going to do this episode at the end of the last one. If you need a refresher, might help to go back and listen to that last uh, five minutes or so. Based on the conversation I had with Brian, uh, based on Joan Didion and this essay that I keep repeatedly imploring you to read, which, by the way, you can now at escapingthecave.com. I posted it for you. It's one of the pages. If you're uh, trying to access it on a mobile device, use the little drop-down menu, you'll find it. This is an essay that she wrote back in 1965 talking about how when what we want or what we think we need is somehow framed in our minds as becoming a moral imperative, that's when self-righteousness kicks in, that's when people enter the realm of the madmen, the field of the fanatic. It's an excellent episode, part, episode, an excellent essay, particularly the last three paragraphs of it. And as Brian pointed out on Sunday, it probably explains the vast lion's share majority of what we are experiencing in this country today. Did you watch the debate this week? Did you try? So did we tried. On Morality, Joan Didion, that's the name of the essay. I also threw another one up there this week from Slouching Toward Bethlehem. I wish I had found Joan Didion years ago. She is now one of my favorite writers. There's another one in there. I'm reading a, 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 a series of articles I think she produced while she was down in El Salvador during the revolution, during the Civil War in the early 80s. The woman's incredible. D-I-D-I-O-N, get familiar with her. She's gone now. She died a year or two, maybe, I don't know, a little longer than that. But she's fantastic. But this ties into that uh, moral imperative self-righteousness connection and how it also applies, how all of this applies to propaganda. Because propaganda, one of its sole objectives is to manufacture, to engineer that sense of Self-righteousness inside the propagandy, placing them on the side of God in a battle against mortal evil. And once you're under that spell, you become vulnerable to enraged outrage, which is the root of hatred, which is one of the goals of agitation, propaganda. That pretty much wraps up the episode. I'll come back. There's a few other things I wanted to tie into this after you hear it. Some of the other material, though, really important. Dissociation. Dissociation is not a word that we use all the time. It's the uh, antonym of association. (laughs) Okay? And he's using this in the context of disassociating yourself 
from yourself. How propaganda works to do that. It's creepy. I've felt some of this myself over the years. I've seen it in other people. He talks about excitation and depression, the cycles that propaganda uses to keep people in an agitated state. Talks about certainties, symbols, stereotypes. The certainties that come with that self-righteousness or that self-righteousness that comes from moral certitude, moral imperatives. Talks about the chasm between the public and private opinions and how that private opinion in the face of overwhelming public opinion can be suppressed, repressed, pushed down into some little corner of the psyche where it can't get out and it can be suffocated. And a lot of times, that private opinion runs counter to the public opinion of your in-group. What do you do then? Then I get into something that I find completely fascinating. It's the idea of the engineered orthodox man who's manufactured to think, behave, speak a certain way. He uses socialism, the socialist man, as an example, but it goes both ways. This isn't, none of this stuff is going to be ideologically specific. I should probably point that out. In these episodes, I was focusing a lot on the woke flake crowd. This stuff cuts both ways. If you're a liberal, you can think of a million examples of the things that I'm talking about that are exhibited on the right, inside of the cult of Trump. These are not the examples I use. But you're not wrong there. When he's talking about these fabricants, he's talking about a man who lives in quote-unquote official truth, party-line truth. One of the creepiest aspects of propaganda is taking the you out of you. How you lose yourself. What makes you unique? What makes you a unique entity in the universe? How this orthodox conformity is a form of suicide. Much of this is very closely connected to uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, self-reliance, something I talked a lot about last year. Also talk about dissociation between thought and action. Not just cognitive dissonance, slowly being strangled within your, within your mind. Also, how there can be a dissociation between your thoughts and your actions. What you do. This is not a comfortable episode, but the information is really, really good. All right, this is the morning of uh, August 15th, 2019. Early, early morning. I record these things in the middle of the night. Thursday morning, right? I think so. I lose track of the days here and there. I'm going to get back into the propaganda theme today. I talked about, uh, last time was the uh, alienation theme. How people are sort of uh, separated from who they are by propaganda. In other words, how they sort of alienate themselves from themselves and allow themselves to sort of be inseminated by somebody else's ideas, somebody else's doctrine. Today, I'm going to talk about uh, the psychic dissociation effect of propaganda. Now, this is from Jacques Ellul's book, Propaganda. Uh, I've been talking about this. I may be on this book for a long time. What propaganda does to you psychologically without you knowing it. There are a lot of things in this one that will scream at you if you're paying any, any kind of attention to anything socially or politically these days. It's disturbing how prescient, 55 years old, written in 1965, Just the sheer information, the basic information in and of itself, you're going to want to listen to this. 
If you don't have the time to read the book, I understand that a lot of people are busy. They don't have time to sit down and read stuff like this and contemplate and ponder. I understand that. If you can't do that, which is the best way to get this information, far better than listening to me babble, I would highly recommend, if you are concerned about this stuff, to listen to the next few podcasts. I'm not getting paid here. I'm not selling advertising. I, I get the downloads. I don't get anything from it, okay? I'm trying to build a brand here. I'm not trying to build a business. It's important. Anyway, the psychic uh, dissociation effect of propaganda. This is the uh, next section in this book, the psychological effects of propaganda. That's the uh, section that I'm drawing from. And he starts out by saying that uh, propaganda puts the individual through endless periods of alternating periods of excitation and depression. And it's caused by exposing him to alternate propaganda themes. Does this sound familiar? Uh, for example, alternating those of terror, fear, oh my God, this could happen, and self-assertion, how to activize. Now, the result is a continuous emotional roller coaster, and it can become very dangerous uh, for some individuals who are exposed to it. And he'll get into why. And one thing you've got to remember is the overexcitement that propaganda triggers. It does. It triggers an overexcitement in people. It sends them overboard. It doesn't matter what side of this you're looking at. In our binary culture, our binary propaganda culture, our binary alternating themes of propaganda culture, we're evenly split down the middle. I can think of no better example, no better extreme example of what he's talking about with alternating themes and then this. Each side uses the other as the contrasting theme to their own. It's obvious. It's self-evident, man. The propaganda is constantly urged into action. And he's often prevented from accomplishing what he wants to, what he's, what he's urged to do. He can't do it. He can't pull it off. His certainties are absolute as well. The propagandese certainties, they're absolute, rock-solid, chiseled in cognitive stone, these certainties of his. He is constantly overexcited by these certainties and his ever-renewed aggression toward the symbols and members of his own culture. Leads him quickly into disintegration as a result of the extreme discrepancies between this overexcitement and his social-slash-cultural group. Like the constant psychological shock of contradictory propaganda, this can be one of the causes of what he's calling psychic dissociation. Dissociation, if you're wondering what that means, that'll become obvious here in a minute. Now, and ignoring the obvious dissociations and disconnects in the propaganda between public opinion and his silent, private, often suppressed personal opinion, propaganda produces a deep separation between the two. Propaganda produces a deep separation between public opinion and the silent, private, often suppressed personal opinion. What you really think deep down inside there's a disconnect, a dissociation between what you actually think and public opinion, the opinion of your group, your echo chamber, your mob, your doctrine, your ideological religion. Now, perhaps I seem a little animated when I talk about this. That's because I have experienced this personally. I was somehow able to keep tethered to my disgust for, I don't know, this prevailing public opinion, right? While I was immersed first in the anti-Bush cult, and then after getting caught up in the ideological riptide, dragging me further and further to the left once I joined the anti-Palin, anti-Teabagger movement. 
And still, to my credit, I was able to hold on to that once again after spending three months inside the resistance before they finally went too far off the rails for me to ignore it any further. What I'm talking about here are these ideas of white privilege. This is my personal thing. This is the one thing that I, not one thing, but these are the examples of things that I never lost contact with, that I disagreed vehemently with their ideas on this. I didn't say anything most of the time. You don't, and I'll get to that in a little while. Most of the time, you can't say anything. Hey, Jeff, you're going to get shouted down. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be called a Trump bot. You're going to be called a fascist these days if you argue with any of these things. That's how it works. So you suppress it. For me personally, to my credit, I'm not gloating here, well, much, but I was able to hold on to this. My disgust for this whole idea of white privilege, this whole idea that men are beasts, right? Remember I talked last week about watching that friend of mine, quote-unquote friend, this former friend of mine, apologize for his gender to some random lesbian at a bar at a hostel in Mexico. And what happened as a result of that? I never lost that. Somehow, I still was able to keep a cognitive connection to it. And thank God. Thank God I didn't suppress that too much. A lot of people do. Another one was the blacks can't be racist thing. Redefining racism. And there were a few very specific moments. Very specific moments in addition to this thing with the dude down in Mexico. These tangible single events that kept me tethered to my own opinion. What I actually thought as opposed to the group. A lot of people will just shove that down. They'll swallow it and they'll put a wall around it. So it never has to create any cognitive dissonance within them when they hear about it from the adopted religion. That is dissociation. That is the disconnect between the public opinion and your personal private opinion. What you really, really think about something. He gets into things. These are incredibly important, especially one of these. He talks about aligned consciousness. And he says this is a term that's frequently used in the Stalin regime, or was frequently used in the Stalin regime, referring to the, quote, conscious citizen of the socialist epoch. He lives in official truth. He lives in official truth, performs a consistent action, and is completely socialized in the context of socialism. He lives an official truth. He lives a disseminated official party-line truth of the doctrine or the system or the party. It's also a creation of propaganda, obviously. Now, beneath that exists what he calls the premeditated consciousness. Incredibly important here. Why? Because this is where Heights Elephant resides in stampedes, in the premeditated consciousness. This is the level at which, according to Alul, the individual tethers his identity and personalizes the data of propaganda and persuades himself that the regime slash party is good, has God on its side. It's also the level at which he works out his justifications. I need an elephant sound effect on my board. I'll have that for you next show. It's where he works out his justifications and decisions for behavior, which will conform to the social demands in such a way as to make him least aware of his twisted conscience, how he's contorting how he feels and how he thinks. 
in relation to what he feels, really feels deep down inside. And finally, at the bottom level, this is the one that I really, really identify with. He calls the secret conscience. I have termed this the inner child, the secret life. It's the real secret self buried deep down in that cave, way down inside of you. Or us, I should say. This is who I'm trying to get a message to with all this. This is the person I'm talking to. This secret conscience is who I am speaking to directly with these podcasts. I am trying to reach you. Can you hear me? Hello, McFly. Can you hear me? You are the one I'm trying to reach. I'm trying to throw you a life preserver. Maybe you're stuck up on, I don't know, down in a crevice. I'm throwing you a lifeline, a rope. I would like to extract you from that crevasse. The secret conscience. It consists of the refusals, the protestations, the judgments against the regime or party. These are the conflicts you have with your own doctrine or with the imposed doctrine. In my experience... This was the conflict I had with having somebody apologize for their own gender, even though I was a liberal. It violated my, quote-unquote, secret conscience, because I never talked about it. It's incredibly important to maintain that, to get in touch with it, and not suppress it until dead. It also combines with a tendency towards cynicism, or in the Soviet example, remember, the Soviet Union, religion, not a good thing, it combined with a tendency towards cynicism or a belief in that era, in that locale, a belief in Christianity. So you still believed in Jesus, even though the state told you not to. What do you do? Do you suppress it or do you hold on to it? That's an extreme example, but I think you could apply that to multiple aspects of the doctrine and the ideology of the propaganda that you disagree with and not become fully inseminated with someone else's ejaculate. The secret consciousness is completely repressed, encircled, and constrained in someone who's been fully propagandized, struggles against prohibitions against itself, suppressions against itself, against the secret conscience. Things like trained and triggered spontaneous impulses, how they trigger you to do certain things or to say certain things or to act a certain way. Cognitive dissonance, it's suppressed behind this encircled and constrained state in which the secret conscience lies. And it's also, I'm adding this, this isn't his, this is mine. It's also kept in check by the what I call the Ministry of Standards and Practices. Friends, family, peer group, the echo chamber, people who keep you in line because you like, I mean, they're part of your group. You respect these people. You like these people. You want to belong with these people. Therefore, you won't cross these people. They become the ministry of standards and practices. I've been talking about this since 2008. That's 11 years. I didn't just come up with this this week. Many, many applications of this secret conscience thing go far, far beyond propaganda. And maybe the other two as well. I'm concerned about this one. This is the inner voice that I've talked about for 10 years. This is Emerson's genius that he talks about in Self-Reliance. The inner voice. You. What you think. What's original to you when you move past conformity. That's what you're suppressing when you suppress the secret conscience. You. 
what is original in this universe to you and like no one else. And they're trying to suffocate that and force you into conformity, force you into thinking the right way. That's it. It's killing individuality. It's killing who you really are and replacing it with a fabricant. This is also the cradle of reason, critical thought. It's the cradle of so many things. So, so many things. Again, it's the you of you. And unfortunately, if you want to use the catchphrase and the slogan, here's a good place to use it. It's almost always the real quote-unquote child in the psychological cage. Again, something I do not need a lul or anyone else to speak authoritatively about. I know what I'm talking about here. This was the foundation. <sighs> of my life for a long time. Bookmark that thought somewhere. Just make a little mental note in your mind that's going to come up again. I need to keep moving, though. Uh, The dissociation between thought and action seems to be one of the most disturbing facts of our time, according to Alul. And this is in 1965. He says, Man acts without thinking, and in turn, his thoughts can no longer be translated into action. Thinking has become a superfluous exercise. Without a reference to reality, it is purely abstract, internal, and detached. Without compelling force, it's more or less a game. Thinking. And he also says he's not referring to quote-unquote intellectual thought either, but to all thought, whether it concerns work, politics, family life, whatever. He says overall thought and reflection have been rendered thoroughly pointless by the circumstances in which modern man lives and acts. He does not need to think in order to act. How many times do you have to think in order to act in your everyday life? I mean, really think. According to Alul, action is determined by the techniques a person uses and the sociological conditions in which he lives. He acts without really wanting to, without ever reflecting on the meaning or the reasons for his actions. He claims that the situation is a result of the whole evolution of our society. And the two decisive factors in this evolution and in this situation are the mechanization of work and propaganda. I will delve into the mechanization of work here, but obviously, needs a caveat, this requires an update. Because things have changed dramatically. This is not the same society in which he was writing about, but I think it still applies on a lot of levels. and You'll see why. The mechanization of work is based entirely on dissociation. According to Alul, those who think, those who establish the schedules, those who set the norms, never act. They don't ever, if you worked in a factory, you know what I'm talking about here. (laughs) And those who act must do so according to the rules, the patterns, and the plans imposed on them from outside. They don't come up with their own plans, their own rules. They just execute somebody else's. They don't have to think, they just act. And above all, they must not reflect on their actions. Oh boy, radio. I'll get to that in a minute. The modern ideal appears to be a reduction of action to complete automation. And uh, Alul says that this is considered to be a great benefit to the worker who can dream of, quote, other things while he's working. (laughs) God. 
That never worked for me. That never worked for me. But this dissociation, which lasts eight hours a day, must necessarily affect all the rest of his behavior as well. Have your waking life. Now, for me personally, (laughs) must not reflect on their actions. This is what drove me out of radio was reflecting on my actions rather than just going into the studio and entertaining people and and reading the liner cards and talking about how great this latest piece of shit song was. Uh, Sarah Barella, she's awesome. No, she wasn't. She sucked. I said so. Eve Six sucked. I said so. Rather than mindlessly going in and doing the job for which I'm being paid, I could not shut the brain off. I could not, definitely could not do this in the factories. I worked in factories for almost a decade before I got into radio. I know what I'm talking about here. I wanted to die every single day. Had I, if I would have stayed in these factory jobs and not put my mind to work on something, I would be dead now because I could not separate that. And I'm not saying this. I've, I've mentioned this before. I know. And I'm not saying this to put myself on a pedestal. I envy people who can do this, who have the cognitive control to be able to just shut the fuck down for eight hours. I cannot do that. The same thing happened to Santa Fe. Last radio gig was awesome. I was making good money, had an easy job, a cake job in a wonderful location. I could not shut my brain off. I could not quit asking, what the fuck are we doing here? What are we doing with this? What is the point here? Are you sure that this is a local, live and local radio? Is this really the evolution of radio, Skippy? Oh, how are you going to be relevant? I kept asking him that. How are you going to be relevant in 10 years, Skippy? If you don't start doing something original, how are you going to remain relevant with when radio goes the way of the blacksmith? I ask them almost every day. This is the owner of the radio station. Nobody could ever give me an answer to that question, and most of them are out of radio now. One way or another, that radio station's doing pretty good out there, to their credit. But he eventually he got sick and tired of hearing I wasn't pulling in the same direction as everybody else because I couldn't shut the brain off and just tug on the rope in the same direction with everybody else without thinking about it. I became a nuisance, and they found a way to get rid of me. Do you blame them? Actually, did me a favor. I never really, well, I did blame them for a while. But I don't blame them for that. Did me a favor. Really, they did. It forced me to, to start thinking about other things. I kept asking myself, while I was doing this, both this and the factory, what the fuck am I doing? What the fuck am I doing with myself? What is the point of this? To go to work, to take a check, to cash it, to go to the store, to pay the rent, wash, rinse, repeat? That's what life is? That's all it is until you get old and then you retire and your, your body's broken down and you can't live anyway? That's what the fuck I'm supposed to do with myself? I don't think so. But that's the thing they're trying to suppress here. They do not want you to reflect on anything. They want you to dream about what you're going to do with your paycheck. They want you to dream about what life's going to be like when you're retired at 65 and you've got a sore back and a bad knee and you finally want to go climb up to Machu Picchu but can't. That's what they want you to dream about. They do not want you reflecting either on the job or on your situation or your standard, your standing in life. Again, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal here. I I admire people who can do that. Just go on with their lives and be happy that way. I do envy you. I'm not saying that facetiously. I'm not being a smartass here. I do. There's benefit to that. There's value to that. I can't do it. 
I need to move on. Uh, the other element that plays a decisive role in the dissociation between thought and action is, of course, propaganda. The theme of the podcast, the theme of this series of podcasts, he would like you to remember that propaganda seeks to induce action, conformity, and participation. Action, conformity, and participation. With as little thought. Back to the work thing. With as little thought as possible. They don't want you analyzing their propaganda and their doctrine any more than Skippy wanted me to analyze his radio station. They don't want you thinking. They want good little worker bees. Disseminating the honey of propaganda for them. They want worker bees. Obeying commands of the queen. The propaganda queen. According to propaganda, it is useless, even harmful, for man to think. Thinking prevents him from acting with the required righteousness and simplicity. Thinking prevents him from acting with the required righteousness and simplicity. Righteousness and simplicity. Action must come directly from the depths of the unconscious. It must release tension, and most of all, it must become a reflex. I would like you to ponder what action means in 2019 with the technology that we've got shoved up our butts now. Again, 1965, things have changed a little bit. Technologically, things have changed. What is action now? Is it running to your Twitter account? Is it running to the Fox News feed on Facebook so you can own some Trump supporters? What is it? What is action today? I mean, we all know what Antifa does when they take to the streets. We've seen that. And we've seen what, you know, people, you know, they, they, they stand, chant, and applaud when they go to a political rally. Beyond that, what is action today? Is it Disseminating propaganda, perhaps? It is, it, is it showing your allegiance to one side or another? Is it waging rhetorical warfare in the virtual battlefield against the enemy? Is that political action these days? Is that the action triggered by propaganda these days? Maybe. Reflexive. How often do you find yourself outraged? I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. I don't care if you're on the left. I don't care if you're on the right. How many times do you find yourself reflexively picking up the keyboard or the phone to punch your opinion in there, to own somebody, to get your righteousness out there? How often do you do that? How often do you feel it? It doesn't matter if you suppress it. How often do you feel that reflex trying to take you in a direction that probably isn't yours? And how often does it feel good when you do surrender to it? Oh, yeah. You don't have to answer any of these questions. I'm not asking you directly. You don't even have to acknowledge I said it. If somebody's sitting next to you, just keep a stone faced like a poker face. No, no, don't, don't bother to react. But you and I know. You and I know. That's the action. It has to come directly from the depths of the unconscious. It must release tension. That's the urge, the tension. You feel tension. You have to say something. I'm tense. I must release this. And it has to be a reflex. You have to reflexively pick up your keyboard or, more likely, in 2019, your phone and release that tension. All this presumes that thought unfolds on an entirely unreal level. But the thought uh, never 
engages in political decisions. It's always reflexive. And this, according to Alul, is in fact the case. That thought unfolds entirely on an unreal level, an abstract level, and never engages in political decisions. Therefore, no political thought that is at all coherent or original can possibly be applied. What a man thinks is either totally without use or, more often, most often, especially today, what must remain unsaid. I'll repeat that. What a man thinks is either totally without use or, most often, especially today, something that must remain unsaid. It doesn't fit. It's a turd in the propaganda punch bowl. So it must be kept quiet. Not going to single you out. I'm not going to put you on blast, Jeff, but you know what I'm talking about. Yours and others' opinions. Other people I've heard, not just you, Jay. Other people have talked about their opinions of neo-feminism. Liberals, loyal liberals, have told and talked to me about their quiet opinions of neo-feminism and critical race theory as well. I know a lot of you don't agree with this shit. A lot of you just won't stand the fuck up because you're afraid to. Because you'll be shouted down. You'll be seen as an outsider. You'll be seen as a blasphemer. You're a sinner. Why would you walk into church? What's going to happen to you in that church? If you go against the doctrine, if you go against the scripture, if you say Jesus didn't exist, what's going to happen? The same thing is going to happen to you if you speak out against the party line, the propaganda line. The recycled, regenerated propaganda line, the wallpaper lining each and every wall of the echo chamber. If you start to peel that away, people are going to get pissed. You know it, I know it, everybody knows it. What I'm trying to get through to your fucking head is don't lose contact with that. Do not lose connection with your own original thoughts and opinions on this. And don't, don't, do not make the mistake of assuming that those thoughts and opinions are your own, at least the ones you're tethered to. If you've just adopted it because it puts you in a position of feeling elevated and superior to those guys, Ah, yeah, I, I like this neo-feminism because that makes me a elite. Oh, look at me. No, no, no. Then it's probably not yours. Could be. Probably not. Do not lose connection with those sort of cynical, blasphemous thoughts you have that go against the party line doctrine. For the love of Christ, don't. He goes on to say that this is the basic condition of the political organization of the modern world. And propaganda is the instrument to attain this effect. You know, going back and listening to this reminds me how much I loved Ralph Waldo Emerson's self-reliance. I used to talk about that a lot. But he talks about listening to that inner voice. He attributes it to God or genius or whatever. I mean, you got to cut through the language a little bit too. But that's the stuff right there. Keeping the you in you. And holding very closely, very tightly to that organic spark that's yours. And the conformist doesn't do that. 
He who adopts an orthodoxy does not do that. The proselyte and the missionary, they can't do that. They're proselytizing someone else's scripture. If you really want to battle propaganda, if you really want to fight it, you've got to figure out a way to hold on to that, and that is done, I think, in my opinion, through the process of detachment, viewing everything else with a healthy, healthy skepticism. Trying to figure out if this person has something to say or something to sell. I could go on for another hour about this. I probably have various other points during the, the run of this podcast. It's not the point of the, the episode today, though. The point of it was self-righteousness. Joan Didion's on morality, the morality test. The person who has taken their moral imperatives and moved and stepped onto the battlefield of the fanatic. They're about two steps away from coercion. Trying to force somebody to behave according to their moral imperatives. Self-righteousness. Once again, that essay is up on my website at escapingthecave.com. But once you have that moral imperative, once you have adopted that self-righteous attitude, (laughs) and you've got a steady stream of propaganda coming into your device, coming into your mind, it prevents you, as I said in the episode here, it prevents you from actually engaging in what is authentic thought. Thinking prevents the propagandee from acting with the required righteousness and simplicity. Children in cages. Don't hear that so much anymore these days. Heard it a year ago when I put this podcast out. It was all over the place. Notice how that slogan's, you don't hear that too much anymore. Huh. That's interesting, isn't it? There's one other thing about this too. Rationalization and repackaging scripture. Rationalization repackaging scripture and doctrine and orthodoxy is often, very often, mistaken for thought. Those are not the same things. Rearticulating someone else's thought is not thought. That's repetition. That's recitation. Rewording something is plagiarism. It's not thought. Now, we talked about how moral certitude, moral imperatives lead to self-righteousness. Well, in the mind of the, in the, mind of the righteous... And self-righteousness is often mistaken for an almost holy sense of morality. They can't tell the difference. I ask this question a lot. Is that morality I smell? Or is it just based self-righteousness? Can you tell the difference? Would you be able to tell the difference? Can I tell the difference? That's a, that's a hard question. And some of that evil introspection Brian and I were talking about last Sunday. But that also creates a fanatical sense within the propagandee. That he and his in-group are on the side, as I keep saying, on the side of God. This battle against evil. This is the realm of the fanatic, and there are many examples of that throughout the political discourse. Using air quotes there. A perfect example is abortion. Where you see this moral imperative, this moral certitude... In response to abstract questions, on both sides, the fanatics are everywhere. You're surrounded by them. This is not ideologically specific. I have to, be, I have to do a better job of pointing that out, because it's not. Some people actually believe. <laughs> yeah, you Bill Hicks fan? He talks about masturbation in one of his bits. He says he has ejaculated entire civilizations into a gym sock. A lot of the fundamentalist anti-abortionists believe exactly that. That all of these lives begin at ejaculation. 
Well, maybe they're saying conception, but pretty damn close. They don't think they're fanatics. They just think they're moral. If you're pro-choice, you see them as a fanatic. On the other hand, there's some pro-choice fanatics that think life not only doesn't begin at ejaculation or conception, but that it only begins at the very far end of the vaginal canal. That to be sentient, you must first get past the velvet vaginal rope. That the fetus's life begins only with their holy consent, which is equally fanatical. I'm not even going to say in my mind, fanatical. None of this stuff is easy, man. None of this stuff is easy. Brian was right about something. He was right about a lot of things on Sunday. But to battle this, you have got to develop an almost superhuman sense of introspection. To be able to monitor your own thought processes. To admit your own vulnerabilities, your infallibility. And I still hold to the fact that you have got to learn to disconnect, detach. Emotionally detach from the outcome. Get your dog out of the fight as best you can. EscapingTheCave.com, that's the website. Don't forget those two essays are up there as pages. Mobile device, use the drop-down. Twitter and Facebook are done. We'll talk about that a lot on Sunday. Sure of that. (sighs) Hope you enjoyed this one. We'll do some more of these uh, mini-episodes as time goes on. Thanks for clicking in. Until next time, so long.